in the spring of 2011, uh, the world witnessed this uh, mass uprising in the country of Egypt. Now, I don't, y'all may have remembered this, so may, some of y'all were in college, others of you midway through high school. And what happened in what later was termed as the Arab Spring in the country of Egypt was this uprising came, and they, uh, the, the, popular, uh, the popular crowd, just the mass of people, they ousted the Egyptian president, uh, Hosni Mubarak. And uh, in that process, um, the military seized control of the government to kind of keep it afloat and keep things in place before a guy named Mohamed Morsi uh, eventually took power in Egypt. Now, Morsi was of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was a political party and is still a political party kind of throughout the Middle East. Now, just this past summer, um, there was another uprising in Egypt. When the people came along and said, well, we really don't like Mubarak, or we don't really like um, uh, Mohamed Morsi, nor do we like the uh, Egyptian brother or the Muslim Brotherhood. And so they kicked him out of power. And then Egypt as a country said, we no longer even recognize the Muslim Brotherhood as a political party. Now, why do I say that? Well, it's become pretty common in our day, particularly kind of in that part of the world, the Middle East, for groups of dissidents to rise up and to revolt against the government, against the ruling parties. And the questions that always happen, that always come up whenever a revolution takes place are this. Can this movement really do the things that they need to do to kind of be their own government? So let's say that if somebody rises up and they kick the government out or somehow oust the president, can this new group of people move in and make things work? So that's one question. Another question is, can it remain, can the movement remain true to its original ideas? Right? So they, they inevitably see some things they don't like. When they move in, can they stick, tr- stick to those things and stay true to those things? Or will they eventually just become like every other uh, government in the world, corrupt, bowing to popular, uh, popularity and to money and to bribes and all that stuff? Well, I say that because when Jesus showed up on the scene in first, in first century Israel around Jerusalem... There are all sorts of uprisings, all sorts of people who claim to be revolutionaries and all this stuff. And Jesus certainly was starting a revolution himself. But it was certainly different also from the other ones and those in our day. You see, Jesus, he was a Jew, which meant that he was born into this national theocracy. This, you know, we have a democracy. His was a theocracy. Israel was a place where God was at the center of the government. That's what we're going to talk about in a minute with the Old Testament. Jesus was born into that. But in order for him to bring his revolution, to have it uh, become successful, he also had to do two things. One thing that he had to do is that he had to show the Jews in his day, of which he was one, he had to show the Jews in his day that he really, really was the Messiah, the fulfillment of their scriptures, of their Old Testament. Okay? And he see, we see that with him when he says things like, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He didn't intend to just put those people on the outsides. He wanted to bring them in and say, look, I am the one you've been looking for and waiting for. But another thing that he had to do is that he had to show that he and his followers were really, truly, faithfully committed to the goal and to the things that he was talking about, even to the point of death for himself and eventually for those who followed him. He had to show that they were totally committed. And so as I mentioned, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's, if we will, his revolutionary speech 
on what things are going to be like when he comes and takes up shop, when he begins to rule and reign in our own lives, but also in the world. And so what impact does this have for that Old Testament, for that holy book, for the people of Israel? And this would have been of extreme importance for people in his day. But I want to suggest it actually means something for us today, however many you know, centuries later, 2,000 years later. It means something for us. So what do we do with it? What did Jesus do with it? And what do we do with it? So let's read this passage. Uh, it'll be up behind me. It's on the sheets in front of you. And then we'll uh, talk about it for a few minutes. And this is from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Jesus speaking says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there and before, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. That is the word of the Lord. Let me pray uh, for us before we look at it. Father, I pray that you would uh, send your spirit, that you would be present with us to open our, our eyes, open our hearts to receive um, what is here in your word. And I pray that through it we would have a greater understanding of you, of your Old Testament, and why that matters. Uh, and I pray that we would see uh, Jesus as more beautiful than he has ever been. We would see our need for him more than perhaps we ever have. We pray that you do this in us, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so when I was a sophomore uh, at OU, um, sophomore, yeah, sophomore year, we, uh, we won the national championship that year in football. And it was just a crazy year because we started the year yeah, kind of like OU started this year. You all probably don't care, but um, they started like 16, 17. Pretty good, but not like awesome. No one expected them to be amazing. Well, we just kind of threw the year. People above us kept losing, and we kept winning. Well, it got to be uh, there was a game on October 31st, so Halloween. And the night before, uh, outside the stadium, people... Just They went and spent the night. We put tents out there. I say we. I didn't do it. But some people did. Um, and they slept out. You know, it was just a big party. People were dressed up. Well, the next day we were playing Nebraska. And Nebraska was ranked number two at that time. And we were ranked three. Bethany, you're not going to like how this ends. Um, and so <laughs> Bethany went to Nebraska. Um, and so what happened is, long story short, OU won the game. And at the end of the game, pandemonium ensued. Students came flooding out of the stands. We ripped down, again we, uh, they ripped down both goalposts. Um, and what was crazy about it is that if you were standing right around the goalposts at that time, like you would have thought that there was some sort of mass mob, something terrible was happening because security was standing out there with pepper spray 
like spraying people down. It's like, God, who does this? This is a football game. But I mean, people are going to the hospital. They've got this stuff in their eyes. Now, imagine that you had just been, you didn't know the context for it, and you had just been teleported right into the middle of that scene by the goalpost. And you just saw this craziness. You saw things being ripped down and pepper spray flying. You would assume that things were not going well, that there was something terrible happening. And you'd be totally confused. You'd be in a total daze about exactly what was happening. Look, I actually think that's how a lot of us feel about the Old Testament. That when we look at the Old Testament or perhaps you just maybe parachute in and start reading it, uh, you know, depending on where you land, you just kind of look up and are like, good grief, what is happening here? Uh, you know, there's people's heads falling off and, you know, these crazy laws. That, like, what do we do with that? And, and what helps, and what I'm going to suggest and what we're going to do tonight is that we actually need to, like in the football game, we need to zoom out and get the context for what exactly the Old Testament was, what its purpose was, and then to see what Jesus does with it. Because he talks about the Old Testament and his relationship to it. So we're going to look at it three ways. We're going to look at Jesus' attitude toward the Old Testament, and then his application of the Old Testament, and finally his accomplishment of the Old Testament. Okay, so first, Jesus' attitude toward the Old Testament. Let me reread verses 17 through 19. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. The law and the prophets is this collective term for the Old Testament. Because you had the laws and the prophets were, you know, all the prophetic books, but also kind of included the Psalms and things like that because they had prophecies in them. Anyway, the law and the prophets is the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, which is the smallest little, like a dot of an I in the Hebrew Hebrew language, uh, nor a dot, which would be a a stroke of a pen that sounds backwards, that's what it is, uh, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so why is the Old Testament confusing to us? And why is this passage maybe even confusing to us? Because we need to understand what what we think Jesus is saying. The reason this is confusing is because we think when we hear him say, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. What we think that means is that Jesus is coming and saying, I did everything, and now that I've done everything, I'm making it obsolete. It has no relevance for us anymore. It's like, it's the way that uh, you think about fulfilling an assignment for professor, right? When he tells you to write a random paper about something, and you write it, and you're like, I can't wait to get this over because I never want to look at it again or think about it again. So you write your four- to six-page paper, hand it in, and it literally never crosses your mind, that subject matter, ever again. So we think that's what Jesus is saying. Uh, maybe it's, uh, you think of it that when you grew up, your parents would tell you to clean your room. And so what you'd go do is you'd go do it that one time, you'd pick it up and clean it, and then you'd come back downstairs and whatever. And it's just, it's a done deal. It's packaged up, I did it, and it sends it out the door. Or maybe uh, the way you think about fulfilling your requirements for graduation. That you've got a sheet in front of you with the courses you have to take, and each semester you're just methodically working down through that, so that when you get to a day, you'll say, I've fulfilled it, I'm never going back, but I'm moving forward. Now that's fine. That's fine. And I actually think Jesus is saying a little bit of something like that. But he's actually saying much more than that. Because to fulfill can mean that. It can mean to fully do it or fully obey or accomplishment. But it can also mean to fill full of meaning. 
to feel full of meaning. And so rather than Jesus saying, look, don't pay any attention to the Old Testament. It's all just totally irrelevant now. It means nothing for you. What he does is he comes and he reinterprets the Old Testament, bringing more light to it, bringing more depth to what was there. And then we see that when Jesus says that you have heard it, that it was said, but I say to you, what he's saying is, look, I acknowledge what the Old Testament says. Do not murder. But I say to you, do not even harbor anger or resentment in your heart. So he's taking you on and saying, yes, that's true, but it means more than that. I'm giving it more depth and more meaning. So another way to think about it is that Jesus came to fulfill or set up certain aspects of the law so that we could know what it looks like to follow him. What people in his kingdom would know what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, think of it like this. Last, uh, last Thursday, I brought two of uh, our daughters up to the TU football game and we're walking around. Gosh, they walk so slow. <laughs> we were walking around beforehand. We parked way over there. It took 30 minutes to get over here. Um, but we're walking around out there on the new U. And, um, you know, there's all the corporate table or corporate tents and stuff, which you're always wondering, can I just, seriously, can I have a hamburger? Um, but you don't because you feel weird. But anyway, our girls, they flock to the, uh, the blow-up and the bounce houses, right? And last week there was a huge, like, mountain, climbing mountain thing that had, uh, you know, things you grab onto and climb to the top. Definition of a climbing mountain. Anyway, um, but the bounce house, think of it like this. That before the bounce house is blown up, the, you know, they unroll this thing out of a trailer and it's just kind of lying there on the ground. But what happens when they hook up that air to it? The thing starts to take shape and it starts to come off the ground. And all of a sudden, what was once just a pile of tarp starts to take shape. And you see that, oh, there's an entrance to the bounce house. And you see a way in so that you can enjoy it. What Jesus is doing when he comes to fulfill the Old Testament is he does fully fulfill some of it. But for other things, what he does is he starts putting air into it. And he's saying, I am going to show you how you were meant to live. I am going to show you what it looks like to have life and have it to the full. I am going to show you the way in. I'm going to show it so that you can enjoy the life that you have and so you can know what it means to follow me. So what about all the strange laws of the Old Testament, right? What about all the things like the, you know, the random things that you just plop down and read in the Bible and it makes you never want to go back to Leviticus or Exodus or wherever those places are again? You're like, good grief. <laughs> Take me to John. Um, <clears throat> what do we do about that? Because it's okay for us to acknowledge that if you've ever tried that, it is hard. Like the Bible can be very confusing. I'm not trying to like shame you if you think that. I spent a lot of time studying the Bible, and there's still lots of parts of it that I think are confusing. So we just need to acknowledge that and say, if that's true of you, um, that's okay. Like Jesus isn't standing there mad at you because you don't understand everything. But let's think about this, and this will hopefully give us a way to frame what we do read in the Old Testament, specifically the laws. So there are three categories of laws in the Old Testament. Okay, There are three categories of laws. The ceremonial and sacrificial laws, okay? So if you think about, if you open up the Old Testament and you're in Leviticus or somewhere, and it's like all these things on if someone has leprosy, they have to go outside the camp for seven days and then go to the priest and he needs to check them and see if they're clean. They need to go back out. Like all of these things, um, food laws, like, hey, you can't eat shellfish and you can't eat things that part the hoof. And it just gets weirder and weirder on down the line. You're just like, what? what? What's going on with that? 
So you have the ceremonial uh, sacrificial thing. We'll come back to it in just a sec. Then you have the judicial laws. And then you have the moral laws. Okay, now the judicial laws were set up whenever God had redeemed this people from Egypt and brought them out. It started as a family, but by the time he brought them out from Egypt, from slavery, they were a huge nation. And he brought them out and said, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my, my people. And I'm actually going to make you a nation. So he kind of institutes this theocracy thing. And he gives them laws to function by. Just like in America we have the Constitution. God essentially gave them their Constitution. and said, this is how you are to follow. And so if people transgress or break these laws, then there are these punishments for them. Some of them more severe than others. But that's where you see things like, you know, if someone commits adultery, you stone them to death. Because that was a very serious sin in God's eyes. Okay? Um, and then you have the moral laws, which were things like most... Uh, most easily, the Ten Commandments. These things that just kind of are about the way we live and the way we treat other people, the way we relate to God and others. Okay, so what does Jesus do with these three things? This is super important. So the first category, the ceremonial sacrificial laws. When Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law, when it applies to this group of the laws, he literally is saying, I did it. I am putting an end to these things because in me, they no longer have meaning and purpose. And we get this from places like Mark seven nineteen, where Jesus looks uh, and, and talking about um, this very thing, says that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him. And Mark adds in there, and in so doing, he declared all foods clean. What Jesus is saying is there's no such thing as unclean foods. You can eat the pork, you can eat the shellfish, you can eat the the animals that part the hoof, all this stuff. It doesn't matter anymore. Because that was part of Israel. That was part of what I was doing with you in the Old Testament to make you holy and set apart from everyone else. But I've done away with that now. Israel as a theocracy is done when Jesus comes. Okay? In the same way, the the sacrifice. Hebrews 9... uh, 9.26 says, Jesus appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what he is saying is that all of the crazy sacrifices in the Old Testament, you know, it's just blood everywhere and the priest is throwing blood out on the people. Jesus says, when I offer myself on the cross as a sacrifice, it puts an end to those things. There is no more need for sacrifices. And this is why Christians aren't and shouldn't be uh, sacrificing things. Um, That if you end up in a church and they're still sacrificing things, eh, you might want to leave. Or if you enter into a church and they're still telling you, like, no, you still can't eat these certain things or do these certain things, uh, in my estimation, and I have a lot of scholars behind me, uh, that's a misunderstanding of the Old Testament. Okay, what about the second little group, the judicial laws? Well, Jesus says that in him the theocracy is coming to an end. He says in Matthew 21, 43, that the kingdom of God will be taken from you. And he's looking at the Jews at this point. He said the kingdom of God is being taken from you and is is being given to a people producing its fruits. The Apostle Paul picks up on this line of thinking in Galatians 3.28 when he says, There is now neither, uh, neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. He is saying those dividing lines between different nations and all this stuff, it doesn't matter anymore. That I am bringing you all together in this thing called the church. Okay, so the judicial laws, stoning people for adultery, that stuff is done. That stuff is done. 
But the third part here, these moral laws or the Ten Commandments, this is the part that has lasting impact. And we see this even in when they were given. Because if, if you will remember, or maybe you don't know, that's fine. Um, when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, He etched them in what? Stone. To show that these have permanence. These aren't just written on parchment, which can fly away or be burned or whatever. These are on stone. These have, these have lasting effect for my people for all times and all places. So Jesus says to those people around him, they say, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, which has forever and long been the summary of the Ten Commandments. The first four are about loving God. The last six are about loving your neighbor. So Jesus is saying this is still in effect. The moral dimensions of the Old Testament law is what Jesus launches into when he talks in this passage about murder. And in the coming weeks when he talks about adultery and sexual sin, he talks about oaths and divorce and all sorts of things, loving your enemies. He's saying those things still have meaning for my followers. Okay, so um, he then... Oh, wait, actually, let me go back for a second. Um, so his attitude then toward the Old Testament is that he is not anti the Old Testament at all. He's saying, I came to fulfill it, and I've come to fill it full. And to reinterpret and to give it its fullest meaning for you. So what does that mean for us? That means that we can't just dismiss the Old Testament as if it doesn't matter. Now, I'm not going to put this massive burden on you to say, oh, now you have to go read all the Old Testament's fullness. But, you know, you might, you might want to because the New Testament's not going to make a ton of sense until you realize what it's coming out of. Until we see what it's being born out of. Now, what that means is that you may have to ask a lot of questions. And that is so perfectly okay. I'd love to talk to you about questions in the Old Testament. Um, I'd be very surprised if you came to me and said, I want to talk to you about questions from the Old Testament. But that's fine. Um, but look, that's a good thing. Because wrestle with that. Figure out what's going on there. There's books that we can talk about and give you that would help with that. Uh, a guy named Mal McSwain, who was big into Young Life several decades ago, said that, if we believe just what we like in the Bible, meaning if I just want to pick certain things like, ooh, I really like when Jesus said this, but I don't like when the Old Testament said that. He said, if we want to just pick and choose what we think is right about the Old Testament, what we like, he said, you really don't believe the Bible. You really just like and believe yourself. Do we get what he's saying? That, that if we want to just pick and choose what we like in the Bible and what we think is important, Basically, we're putting ourselves over the Bible and saying, I get to interpret it for myself. And I get to do, uh, decide what is really important and what's not. And that's fairly arrogant um, of us. We do it. Um, but we need to kind of see what's going on there. Okay, so that's his attitude toward the Old Testament. He's pro the Old Testament. He's fulfilling it. Um, but he then goes on to apply it. And he gives this example about murder here. And so he looks down in, uh, in verse 21 through 24. I'm not going to read all the way to 26. But through 24, he says this. You have heard that it was said to those of old. And he is, he is just quoting the Old Testament in the, in, the fourth, or in the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Fifth? Sixth. I don't know. 
Leave it for you. Uh, And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. If you are offering a gift at the altar, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go and be reconciled to him. Okay, so what is Jesus saying about murder? What is he saying? He is acknowledging and upholding this most famous of the Old Testament commands. I mean, everyone basically in the world, whether you are a Christian or Jew or whatever, you're going to acknowledge that murder is not good, that it is evil, that it is bad. And so Jesus goes right for it here and says, look, I'm actually going to deepen that a little bit. And you don't quite get off the hook if you haven't murdered anybody. And what he says that actually, if you harbor anger in your heart, if you bind up resentment toward people around you, if you insult another person, then you're murdering them in your heart. Now, we don't like this. This is really, it starts to get a little hot in here because we realize, oh, crap, I do that. I can do that all the time. I, I get mad at people all the time for stuff. When they cross me or they do something that makes me mad, I get very angry at them. Um, and you do too. And so what Jesus is doing is he's drawing, in, he's drawing us into this and saying, look, those things that you tell yourself and you maybe even tell your friends saying that's not a big deal, he's saying, no, it's, that's actually a big deal. That when you have those seeds of, of anger or of frustration in your heart toward other people, he said that is like murder. You are murdering them. And thus we stand guilty. It's so much more pervasive than we want to think. It's like he's putting this commandment on steroids. Uh, have you ever seen anybody on steroids? Side note here. Um, <laughs> you can really tell when people start to take steroids because uh, beforehand, you know, they're maybe just fairly average size. Uh, you can, if you go online, you can uh, look at Barry Bonds, like just the progression of his size from when he got on steroids. Uh, very normal size to all of a sudden, you just can't miss it. It's absurdly like different parts of their body are massive and they look funny and usually have terrible acne because that's what the, the steroids do. And Jesus is saying that when I'm coming to talk to you about murder, I'm putting it on steroids. You just can't miss it. And it's not going to miss you. You can't get out of its way. So again, not too many of us in here, I'm guessing, have actually murdered someone, killing people. Maybe you have when you talk about that. Um, <clears throat> free for coffee tomorrow. Uh, so this commandment certainly does forbid outward forms of murder. And this is why Christians take uh, uh, the issue of abortion very seriously. Um, that the Bible would contend that that is life and so that is murder. Um, but it actually goes on from that and says, look... Um, what about those destructive thoughts, those, those evil thoughts you've had against your roommate whenever he or she kept the light on late uh, and you just really wanted to like punch them in the face or slash their tires or other things? You know, like those seeds of, mm, I just want to kill you. Um, what about those things of where you, have, where, where you actually do have unkind words for people? And you might actually, something comes out of your mouth and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't, can't believe I said that. I want to take it back. Or maybe even if it's not even the words, just the unkind thoughts. 
And what Jesus says and what he's getting at in this application is even when we have indifference toward people, when we just look at those people around us and we just kind of deem them not that important, you, you know who they are. The people who maybe aren't as attractive or who aren't as socially capable or who may have disabilities or may be poor. And we just kind of ignore them. We don't really deem them to be worthy of a conversation or of our attention. And Jesus is saying, whenever we degrade someone in any way, we are harboring murder for them in our heart. And he actually says he's so concerned with this sin that if there is even this perception that someone might have something against you, then you ought to go and seek to reconcile that before you come to worship. He says that this sin is so serious that if you come to church and come to things like are you and just kind of go through the motions and yet you know that you have relationships in your life that are not reconciled or are not moving toward reconciliation or you haven't asked forgiveness or, or something... He said, don't come and worship me. He said, you're making a mockery of this whole thing. Because what Jesus came to do is to bring reconciliation between humans and God, but also between humans and each other. He's saying, so you can't bypass this. It's a big deal. Okay, so the natural question then, is it, is it ever right or okay to be angry then? If Jesus says this is so terrible, is it ever okay to do this? You know, isn't there such thing as righteous anger? So yes, Jesus himself, the one who completely, perfectly fulfilled all of the laws, he was perfectly loving. He never got angry in the sense that he is uh, forbidding here. He never murdered anyone in his heart. But he did get angry, righteously so. He got angry at different times and with different people. Here's the things that Jesus got angry at. One, we have to understand that he was always very slow to anger. He was very patient with people. He was very patient with people. Secondly, he didn't get angry whenever he was personally mistreated. We need no more example than the cross and the whole sham that was his trial and his cru- things leading up to the crucifixion. He was utterly mistreated, utterly, utterly uh, cheated against in the courts. And he didn't get angry. He, in fact, just sat there and took it. Thirdly, he became angry for the sake of others. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm like the opposite of that list. <laughs> I get really pissed really quickly. Uh, I get mad when people cross me personally. And most of the time, I don't care about others. That's the honest truth. I don't love that about myself at all. But that's kind of where I am. And what that tells me is that my heart isn't fully right yet. That God is still at work in me changing those things. Hopefully to become more like Jesus. Hopefully I'm slower to anger than I once was. Hopefully you are too. Hopefully you're beginning to see the people around you and how they've been mistreated and you can get angry about that. And this is where Christians get really involved in things like bringing justice where there is injustice. And seeing people who have been oppressed and Christians enter into those places and seeing to bring dignity in the midst of that depravity. And this is why... Okay, so lastly, let's look at how Jesus accomplishes the Old Testament in verse 20. 
And this will be shorter. He says in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now again, let's go back to his primary audience. When the people standing around him would have heard this, what they would have been hearing when, Jesus, when this came out of Jesus' mouth was, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes. The scribes were the people who fully, they knew the interpretation of the law. They were the experts in the law. They were the seminary professors of that day. So unless your righteousness, your goodness exceeds them, and unless your goodness exceeds the Pharisees, who they were the experts at keeping the law. They were the ones who were doing it. Very well. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds them, then you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And so everyone around him would have been saying, "Uh, well, who then gets to enter the kingdom of heaven? Like, how do we get in? What chance do you and I have at actually getting in when Jesus says this? Especially in light of what Jesus does when he kind of deepens the meaning of these things. Well, part of what happens as we consider the depths of what it means to obey God, you know, and the ways we get angry at others and how that's like murder, part of what this does in us is that it drives us downward in our thinking about ourselves. Because we realize more and more, and increasingly so, and you'll see it in the coming weeks as he continues on with his thought, we get to the point where we're like, dang, I'm not doing so well. Like, I, I actually am murdering people in my heart. I am standing guilty before this commandment. And it's this downward spiral of who I am in terms of my own righteousness. And in that moment, we see just how necessary it was for God to enter the human story, to take on human flesh. We see just how necessary it was for one person to come and to fully do everything right. Because none of us can, nobody can. So God enters and says, that's right, nobody can, but I'm going to. And I'm going to fix this story. And so that's what Jesus did. He came and He fulfilled every one of the righteous requirements of the Old Testament. He fully does it all. Everything is satisfied in Him. But there's actually more than that. So He fulfilled it in His life, in His perfect obedience to God, But he also fulfilled the Old Testament in his death. Because the Old Testament, it has all of these things which say, if you do this and this and this against God, you deserve death. You deserve eternal punishment. Adam and Eve in the very beginning, God said, if you eat of this fruit of the tree, you will die. And so what Jesus does in his own willful going to the cross and dying on the cross is he takes... The Old Testament curse of the law, he fulfills the Old Testament by willingly taking the curse for us. So that when you believe and when you trust him, God no longer has a negative curse against you. He no longer is looking out to come and get you for your sin. Jesus has taken that on the cross. And when one believes that Jesus did that for them, God sends his Holy Spirit inside of you, inside of me. And He now frees us up to obey Jesus, to obey and follow His commandments, not because we have to, to to keep God from punishing us, but He frees us up to do that because He has already forgiven us. And we do this as a response to Him because we love Him. 
And this teaching made the scribes and Pharisees crazy. It made them furious. Because in their interpretation of this law, they had codified the Old Testament into something that they could do, into a law that they could actually follow and try and keep. And they were doing a pretty good job at it. But Jesus here gives the picture that in this story there is only one person who can keep a law with such strict demands. And that he was the only one who ever did that. And if you didn't follow him, then friends, you don't get in. And so it makes perfect sense that the scribes and the Pharisees, they wanted to kill him, and they eventually did. I'll close with this way of thinking about it. Now imagine that I was uh, an NBA basketball player. Not too hard to imagine when you look at my physique, but, um, you know, that I uh, was playing for the Oklahoma City Thunder, and we're having a game last night, and I play terribly. I mean, I, I'm fumbling the ball everywhere. I can't catch it. It's bouncing off my chest everywhere. It's going out of bounds. I'm just playing like an idiot, which is more like what I actually play like. And, um, but Kevin Durant, on the other hand, he has an amazing game. Triple-double. He's got 45 points, and he just has one of his nights that only he can do. He's amazing. Well, we get to the end of the night. I'm feeling terrible about myself. He's feeling amazing because uh, he is. Well, the next morning, this morning, I wake up and I read the headlines of the paper. And it says, Corbin has an amazing game, you know, triple-double. He's amazing. He's on fire this year. And I'm just like, what? What's the deal? And when I look closer into the story and I see the pictures and the captions, what I realize is that before the game, Kevin Durant came into my locker and stole my jersey And he put his in my locker, so I'm wearing his jersey. So when he goes out and does his thing all night long, he's racking up the stats for Corbin. And I'm out there racking up the negative press for him. Ridiculous story. Let's close in prayer. Uh, Y'all, that's exactly what happens in the gospel. That we just kind of bumble our, our way through this life. We fail all over the place. We just make a... Even if we say we follow Jesus, we just make a mockery of Him because we screw up. We don't do the things we ought to do. We, we do things we shouldn't do. But God looks at us and He sees Jesus' name on us. And He says, I love you. Way to go. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you perfectly. I'm going to write stories about you. I think you're amazing. And on the cross, Jesus took our name on Himself. And God said, That's, you have sinned against me. And He takes the full wrath and punishment for that. But isn't it good news that when you see that Jesus has done this for you, God has no more anger or wrath against you. Jesus fulfilled the law for you because He loves you. And He's inviting you into that love. I wonder if you would take it. Let's pray.